Welcome to Exploring Hydrogen. Here we will learn about all the exciting advancements, opportunities and challenges of this nascent energy sector. We delve into how hydrogen can contribute to the decarbonisation of Australia and the world and investigate what it's going to take for adoption and into transportation, industry and society. I'm Andy Marsland. Welcome to our energising journey. I'm thrilled to welcome our guest today, Daniel Roberts. Daniel is the Research Director for CSIRO's Energy Technologies Research Programme, where he manages CSIRO's portfolio of collaborative, industry-focused research, design and development across a range of low-emissions energy technologies, including hydrogen, solar, bioenergy, CO2 capture and use, energy storage and alternative fuels. He has over 25 years research experience, having worked on research projects domestically and internationally, and remains a senior researcher in the area of emerging bioenergy pathways. So a very warm welcome. Great to be here, Andy. Thanks. What an intro. Uh, what... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, who wrote, wrote that oh, as a matter it, of interest? It does sound familiar. I'm not quite sure where that came from. <laughs> So perhaps we could start off a brief background of your career to this point. Sure. Look, I think as with many people in a, in a science, in particular an applied science field, it wasn't planned necessarily to end up as a hydrogen researcher and looking after a whole bunch of, of, of scientists trying to address the, the energy transition problem. It was, it was an opportunistic set of decisions along the way, which is often how it goes, I think. So I started off down in Sydney at doing some um, environmental chemistry work at at Macquarie University, focusing on things as diverse as, as lasers and underground water um, geochemistry, but quickly moved into atmospheric chemistry, which is where I got hooked up with the CSIRO. I was, my first CSIRO experience was a, an, undergrad, an undergraduate summer vacation scholar, um, one of the Christmas beetles that we really like getting in every year. And, um, and that was really good. That was doing a task on a, on a GC that's fully automated by a computer now, so I'm not quite sure what I would have done if it was nowadays. But look, getting in the atmospheric chemistry space there sort of exposed me to energy, applied energy R&D. And um, from then it was it was a PhD through the University of Newcastle with CSIRO. And importantly, that work was done as part of a, a cooperative research centre, which is really where my, I guess, enjoyment of the applied industry-focused nature of, of R&D was, um, was born, I guess. And then so... After the PhD, spent a bit of time in Japan in my first postdoc, working on the very first or one of the very first power stations that were integrating um, gasification with combined cycle, which was you know really seen as the as the most efficient way of making power. But since then, have focused on other energy pathways, diversified into biomass and waste conversion, and of course, um, inherent in all of those technologies, it is hydrogen as a, as an intermediate. And that's where hydrogen has been used for so long as, as this industrial feedstock made where it's, where it's needed and used in, in, in a range of ways. And so you know, building on that sort of industrial hydrogen experience led me to, you know, th- through a career at CSIRO looking after projects and then people and then groups and then, and then programs, really taking an interest in, in seeing what I can do to, to get our hydrogen work really um, raised up to that level where we can support an industry in, in this space, which, um, as I think we'll explore, the time perhaps for that is, has finally come. Yeah, fantastic. thought perhaps we could loop back around to, uh, to gasification a bit later on. I'm interested to learn more about the, the cyclical economy and the, and the waste to energy side of things as well. So uh, maybe we can start, though, if you could just explain to people who CSIRO is. And incidentally, uh, i I believe it stands for the uh, Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organisation. And to be honest with you, I didn't realise how big the organisation was before doing the research mm. for this podcast. Yeah, look, it's, it, it is, I mean, you've done your homework. That's exactly what CSIRO <laughs> stands for. And it's really Australia's national science agency where a, a government or about, about half of our funding comes from government and we use that to do our own work but also to partner up with industry, um, other researchers, and institutes around the world. So we're an applied R&D organisation, really bringing science and technology to, to solving challenges from mainly for Australia, but really drawing on our, our global networks there. So 
Energy, of course, the, the business unit of CSIRO that I'm involved in is an important part of that, but we have we face a range of other industries as well. So we have um, a manufacturing business unit, a minerals business unit. We have work looking at environmental aspects of land and in water, atmospherics, and look and, and other areas around agriculture as well. I mean, agriculture and the associated um, science around plants and animals there has been a traditional mainstay of CSIRO for a long time. So it's a diverse organisation. It's It's got labs and offices all around the country, about five, five and a half thousand people at the moment, but we're really plugged into the, the global network of applied R&D, which I think is a big part of what we do. I guess building on that then, what uh, are you doing globally and in the in the space of hydrogen? Look, our, our primary focus is R&D that is of benefit um, to Australia, and that's obviously, you know, that's our remit, and that's what we're here to do. But Australia doesn't sit in isolation. We we are we're part of a, of a global community, and you know there's a lot of, of science and technology that we can draw on via our collaborations, informal and formal, around the world to bring best practice to Australia to solving certain challenges. I mean, you touched on the waste and, and biomass to energy. That's a good example, I think, of how we can look around the world and bring best practice into this country. Hydrogen is an interesting example in this context. I think it's very active all around the world. The Australian focus here is about how we can leverage this opportunity to both decarbonise domestically, which is obviously of great impact, but also um, seek to decarbonise our energy exports, which we've obviously played a massive part in our economy. So that global angle is is only going to become more important as as the world looks to hydrogen, uh, amongst other things, as a way of of decarbonising their energy sectors. Yeah, fantastic. And obviously we want to minimise duplication as much as possible. So do you feel as if the uh, the communications links are pretty open with other research institutes internationally? Oh, very much so. I mean, science is an international game. Um, there's no doubt about it. And that's been a real challenge for us the last few years is because the bread and butter of, of science is, is you know, doing the research and the experiments and the studies, of course, but then getting out and about and talking about that with our, our peers around the world and not being able to do that effectively over the last few years has, you know, has been hard. But I think we've, we've got some of the way there with some of the online tools and, there's, you know, and we've all, any, any researcher listening is going to know of the joys of a, of a midnight online <laughs> conference <laughs> that they've sat through so, so they can present their work. It's good, but it's not quite the same. And so I'm looking forward to the next few years as things open up again and the international science community can get back to doing what it, what it does because there is a little bit of competition, of course, that's, that's healthy, but really it's about leveraging the strengths of our, of our collaborators and that's a big part of what we do. Any international trips on the horizon for this year then? No, <laughs> not yet. No, we've only just started to think about getting out and about domestically, which is really good. I think yeah, international travel is still a way off for me yet, I think. CSIRO released the National hydrogen roadmap. I think it was in about 2018, so we're four years on from that. How are we going as a nation in aligning to that roadmap and what significant changes have you seen over the last four years? Look, this space has changed in well, four years since then remarkably. And I think, you know, it's it's exciting for researchers to be part of something that is changing so quickly and so positively. You know, I've been in energy research for a while. It's not always positive and quick. And, you know, to, to see that happening around us at the moment is really exciting. And look, four years ago when when the um, the team put together that roadmap, the, the landscape was completely different. It was, you know, the question was always, oh, is it just another another flash in the pan? Is, is hydrogen just another thing that the, a particularly chatty scientist has, you know, got a bit of airtime about? And I think at the time we started to see things changing around us, around the world, in terms of some of the plans and the strategies and the visions from some of the countries around the world, but also in the technology readiness that we had available to us. And I think that was what really got us interested in in starting off our hydrogen energy future science platform back in 2017, which of course was the, a key driver behind this roadmap that, that you mentioned. We started to see those changes. The roadmap was really a, our way of, of putting down on paper where we saw the potential and, and, and some of the pathways. And frankly, I think things have really responded in a way that is really positive and probably quicker than we thought, frankly. You know, we've seen now governments all around the world with, with decarbonisation strategies featuring hydrogen, amongst other things. 
We've got demo projects now having sods turned around the country, which is fantastic news. We've got you know, like Arena, amongst others, putting in funding to, to fund green electrolysis projects. And importantly, we're seeing some demand activity also emerge on, on the back of those and, and elsewhere. We're seeing it cross over into other sectors, which I think is a critical aspect here. Just making hydrogen and you know putting in place a couple of fuel cell cars is really good, but that's you know that's only scratching the surface. And now we're seeing you know the mining sector really look at this in interest. We're seeing you know people talking about green steel now, and that was never even a word a few years ago. The manufacturing sector is looking at replacing natural gas. The heavy industry sector is looking how they can decarbonize a sector which you know, not that long ago was considered really hard to decarbonize. So I think this, I guess, embracing hydrogen as part of a, a decarbonisation plan has really come on quick. And the next step is to actually see some of these projects on the ground and working. And I can't wait for that to happen. That's great to hear. A lot of the work that we're doing with H2Q Hydrogen in Queensland is around the the supply and demand side, particularly on the demand side and bringing those potential end users of hydrogen along the journey. So as you touched upon there, uh, we're starting to see that demand side increasing. Any suggestions or, or thoughts about how we could bring those potential end users on more quickly? Oh, look, firstly, it's critical that it happens. I think six, 12 months ago, there was a bit of a concern that everyone was going to be making hydrogen and there wasn't very many opportunities to actually use it. And these are classic challenges that we have at the start of, of new industry applications. But so, so seeing that the, the, the demand side of projects emerges is really good. And look, I think most, most people in the space are looking to hubs as a way of, of really accelerating that demand side experience. Because so much of it's about not just doing it, but about making you know, sectors that haven't had to worry about hydrogen before I'm comfortable with with what with a handling it and using it, but b also figuring out what it can actually do for their for their emissions profile. So, the hub concept is popular for good reason. So this is an opportunity for you know centralised production, large scale production of of clean hydrogen, and then situate and either doing that in a an industrial hub where there is potential use cases already, or building that around the, the plant. And I think. So many of the of the hydrogen demand side projects are of the sort that allows, I guess, transition. So it's not about moving from what they have now to 100% clean hydrogen. There, there are often opportunities to put in 5% clean hydrogen, or just go halfway, or just trial it and see how it works for their for their process and for their business. And hub concept is a really effective way of allowing that. Um, with multiple users of, of, of one source of hydrogen, um, you know, we, we can share some of the infrastructure costs. You know, costs to entry here are, are continuing to be a, a, a one of the barriers. And we can also um, perhaps stage this in a way that doesn't impact so much the, the cost effectiveness of the production, but does allow them to take steps that are, that are I guess, important for their own de-risking of, of what they do. So, the hubs concept is popular. Everyone seems to have a hub, but that's for, for a good reason because it's a really good way of, of stepping into the industrial scale applications of some of these um, hydrogen pathways. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, could, could you just perhaps give a visual to the listeners of what a hub would potentially look like then? And so presumably we're thinking from a green hydrogen perspective, uh, solar or, or wind farm, industrial users within that, uh, probably refueling stations with kind of back-to-base models for the transportation? A hub could be almost anything, and that's part of the the um, excitement and the challenge with, with hydrogen is that, that you know, it's it's a real spaghetti diagram of, of inputs and outputs and, and opportunities. So, look, your examples are good ones. You know, there could be a, a transport hub where we have a centralised um, production of, of, of hydrogen and trucking and taxis and bus fleets using that as their um, refuelling base, for example. That's an option. Another would be to um, pick a particularly industrial, you know, an area which is already quite focused around a particular industrial application and site a green or a clean hydrogen plant in that location. And people talk about Gladstone as an example there because we have things like ammonia infrastructure, we have the port, we have the industry. These are the, the, you know, the relatively co-located nature of these means that there isn't, you know, there's a range of opportunities for using the hydrogen in, in those, different, those different types. Quinana in WA is another example. 
So look, it, it's it's many and varied. It's and it's about you know, half the challenge here is 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 doing the work with the potential end use um, examples to a help help them understand what's possible, but then work with them to help de-risk some of these pathways because. You know, simply making a decision to go, yep, I'm going to put in 35% hydrogen into my natural gas now. Maybe that's okay, but it's unlikely to go without impact on whether it's your, you know, the temperature profile of your kiln or the, you know, the chemistry of your, of your product or, or whatever you're, you're doing. There are implications here. And so there's a lot of ongoing R&D needed to support these um, types of initiatives. One of the reasons why we're a core research partner in the the, the, the HILT CRC, um, which is all about R&D supporting the heavy industry sector move towards decarbonisation. Hydrogen is one part of that, for example. Quite a specific question, but uh, hydrogen and embrittlement are going to have a big impact on the existing kind of gas networks if you're talking about uh, injection. Yeah, look, and that's one of the many factors that's relevant to that point I was just making about what does putting hydrogen into your system do to your process in your system. I'm no metallurgist, but you know it, it's clear that hydrogen embrittlement is definitely going to be on the list of things that we have to manage. So there's a few ways we can do that. We can move to plastic piping, which is an example that has happened in the north of England where they've managed to combine a, a conversion of, of the natural gas network to increasingly towards 100% and leveraging a, a, an existing program to replace the pipelines with um, with plastic, which is quite quite good for, for hydrogen. Not always possible in high temperature heavy industry. And so understand, I mean, we know a lot about embrittlement, but we need to be able to bring that somewhat fundamental material science to the applications of interest. And so understanding embrittlement, how that is affected by the different percentages of hydrogen, and how your industrial process can respond to that is, is, is an ongoing research question. I think in the natural gas pipelines, which you sort of referred to, I think some of the low concentrations that we're um, seeing in, in the pilots and the demos at the moment are chosen to be in that range where we're fairly confident that it's not going to be a problem. You know, I imagine as we go up in concentrations, the metallurgists will have um, have the opportunity to shine. <laughs> Uh, you and your team have done an awful lot of research into the hydrogen priorities and the opportunities for Australia. So I think a report that I read it said that the or suggested that the main opportunities were around export, around the gas networks, transportation, the electricity systems and industrial processes. So perhaps we could talk through the different opportunities in, in each of those areas. Sure. What was the first one? <laughs> uh, yes, yeah. So maybe we can look at uh, export. So, yeah what, yeah, what do you see the opportunity for export? And I guess as we're doing so, what do you see as the main or what's going to be the predominant transportation medium for mm. getting those molecules overseas? Everyone asks me that question. <laughs> <laughs> I usually give them a pretty cagey avoidance answer, which I'll probably do here as well. Look, export is a massive opportunity. There's, there's no doubt about it. You know, there's we had a bit of an argument early on around, oh, what's more important? Is it you know, setting up an export injury, I- industry or is it setting up a, a domestic industry? And look, I think the way things have gone is that we're seeing, and this is what I'd hoped would happen, we're sort of seeing both of those develop in parallel. It, it's probably a bit easier to get early runs on the board with the smaller scale things around mobility trials and those sorts of things. But there's no doubt that um, export is a, a long-term big opportunity. And I think when we're seeing it happen already, you know, we had the world's first liquid hydrogen tanker come to Australia last month, I think it was, down in, in Victoria and, and take some some liquid hydrogen back to back to Japan. I mean, that's, you know, that's, that's proof positive, I think, that some of these large overseas countries are really investing in doing what they have to do to get these value chains working. And of course, that is one of, you know, liquid hydrogen is is good because you don't need to convert it or react it into a different molecule. And when you get to the other end of your value chain, you have the hydrogen that you need. You just need to degas it in your way. It's very cold. You have to get it very cold. And that takes a lot of energy, of course. And as we just said, there's not a massively established logistics and, and transport chain for, for liquid hydrogen unless you're in the space sector, and that's quite a that's quite a niche application space. So there are pros and cons with all of the pathways. We're also interested in ammonia as an opportunity to move hydrogen around. A little bit easier to liquefy, 
we have boats and ships and ports and infrastructure and standards and all this sort of stuff already on the back of the fact that it's, I think it's the second most traded chemical commodity in the world at the moment, you know, due to its importance for um, fertilisers, explosives and other, other industrial chemicals. But it is, you do need to make it, which is an energy penalty. And then at the other end, if you want hydrogen, you then need to crack it back to hydrogen again. Now, CSIRO has got some tech in that space, which is really, we're commercialising that now with our partners at, at Fortescue. And that's really completing that value chain in a way that's enabling hydrogen ammonia as a hydrogen transport opportunity. But, you know, the good thing about and having each time you make a different molecule, you have to, you know, there's an energy and an efficiency penalty. But because there is such this, you know, a lot of positives with ammonia, we're also looking at ways of actually using the ammonia directly. So if you want fuel cell grade hydrogen for your mobility fleet in Japan, that's good. We have a technology that can help you achieve that. But if you just want to make power, zero carbon power, going to that high purity hydrogen may not be necessary if we can use ammonia as a fuel in its own right. Directly, so directly, yeah, yeah. cracking at the other end. Yeah, that's right. And so we're seeing our colleagues in Japan already using that as a co-fired fuel in, in power stations. Um, we've got our own work looking at its use in engines and ultimately directly into fuel cells. So you can see what I mean about this spaghetti diagram of, of ins and outs. And whilst exciting, it, it can be a challenge, I think, for people that want to you know, get into the space and, and use some of these pathways to decarbonise to figure out what's the best approach for them. Yeah, it's a great uh, analogy or visual, the uh, spaghetti diagram. And I've heard you talk before about the energy systems. It seems like historically energy producers are kind of in their box. And, you know, we're seeing now mining organisations, for example, looking at their, their whole energy economy and, and getting solar wind farms on, on the land and using that um, as energy. You know, the underground miners perhaps looking at some of the meth- methane off- offtake from their uh, their mines and how they could use that as an energy source and uh, producing hydrogen, capturing the carbon. So it seems to be such a myriad of, uh, of opportunities to uh, to work through. And uh, I guess for an organisation like, like yours, it must be quite challenging to work out where the priorities are going to be. It is. And, you know, early on, you know, we were sort of able to keep across most of it because it was manageable. But yeah, it's, it's, it's a big, it's a big space now, lots of interest. And, and the challenge is absolutely to figure out where our, our time is best spent. I think the, a year or two ago, we've we created our hydrogen industry mission, which is, you know, I guess an initiative, one of a few different mission-like initiatives in, in CSIRO, which is really aimed at helping us do exactly that. Look, look at the industry that's evolving around us, partner up as we need to there, and really, you know, I guess, coordinate and direct the breadth of capability in CSIRO to really hitting the challenges and the problems that the industry is, is facing. So um, our hydrogen mission team are really in the thick of you know, that complexity challenge and, and where to focus, absolutely. What are some of the, uh, the bigger projects or uh, bigger areas of focus for you uh, right now at this point? We've got a few different, I guess, um, approaches here. So for a long time, our work, our science work has been supporting new technology development. So we actually have a lot of partnerships with, um, I've mentioned that partnership with Fortescue. We we have a few others as well, which is all around taking some of our technologies and getting them out there into the industry and working with demo and pilot scale projects. That's a real challenging thing to do. Anyone that's been in this space, you, you, you hear them talk about the you know, the valley of death between getting it to the, the size, which you can't quite fit in your lab anymore, but then you've got to go and get it out onto a site somewhere. That's the space where CSIRO does a lot of our best work, I think. You know, we're seeing some some of these techs now come out in our electrolyzer space, in, as I mentioned, our, our ammonia to hydrogen space, and a few others too, which leverage the, the breadth, I guess, of our of our capabilities, linking into other aspects of our work, such as such as solar thermal, solar PV, and, and, and the bioenergy work that you mentioned as well. So getting technologies out there is a big part of our work. Um, supporting demo projects as well is also a big part of our work. I think increasingly we're being asked not so much for a new technology or some, some fancy science, but just to help navigate this spaghetti diagram that we spoke about. And for some of the larger projects, there is a real role for us to play in terms of knowing what's possible, um, having a bit of a, a think about the timeframes over which different technologies might be possible, and then casting a bit of a what we, what we call a techno-economic 
um, net uh, over some of this work to figure out you know, cost-effective pathways, cost-prohibitive pathways, and then consider how we might you know, achieve you know, emissions reduction in the shortest possible time. So it's not just technology, it's not just science, it's also really working with our partners to, to see what's possible and what, what's in their best interest. That's great. On the electrolyzer side, is that efficiency improvements or is it different ways of, of utilizing that, that electrolyzer? I believe there's uh, electrolyzers coming through that are, um, don't need a, a membrane, so membrane free. And also, yeah, uh, I'm not sure if this is the same or a different technology can use salt water as well. That's yeah, been developed. Well, and, and these are all, you know, the salt, you know, not having to rely on, you know, high quality water is, is a big, I think there's, there's a lot of research going on there because I think the, the, you know, the dirtier the water we can use, the, the better it is, or the more application, I think, pathways we have and the less it costs. I mean, you know, we, we can you, you know, desal, small-scale desal from electrolyzers, usually included in, in, in the packages anyway. That's just another efficiency and cost penalty. But look, you know, your question around electrolyzers, it's the reasons they're, they're now um, getting bigger and cheaper and, and more varied in their technology type is just, you know, the impact of ongoing high-quality research, frankly. You know, where the cost of the materials inside these electrolyzers, new materials, which are cheaper anyway, Clever ways of, of assembling them and, and, and integrating them with the with the balance of plant around the actual stack, all sorts of, of developments which have been going on for decades and decades and decades, and now starting to get to that point where they're competitive and you can actually make a business case around some of the applications. So we've got our our PEM, our polymer electrolyte membrane technology now being commercialised through a spin-out company called Endure, which is really exciting. And we're also looking now at our solid oxide electrolyzer technology, which is a very different type of beast. It's a high-temperature electrolyzer, less suited for things like cars and, and, and small power packs. Very, very handy because of the temperature. If we're going to be looking at hydrogen production on industrial sites where there may be waste heat. So utilising waste heat to drive a very efficient electrolyzer is a really good way of... Of, um, of overcoming some of the cost and scale challenges. So it, it's really, you know, shows the impact of good R&D on getting some of the costs down and the scales up of some of these tech. Yeah, great. And when you get a technology to a point that is commercial, does CSIRO CSIR hold, you know, the IP for that and the... Look, it's we have we don't have a, a script here for how we how we partner up and commercialise. It really does depend on a range of factors, I think. But you know, you often it's CSIRO's IP that our partners either license or work with us to take to the next level. That that can be really um, important. So there's there's license arrangements. You know, we, we do like to to keep IP where it's where it's suitable for us because that allows us to. I guess use some of the the IP revenue from that to support ongoing R and D in other new areas, and that's and that's one way we manage to I guess uh, resource some of our pre commercial R and D. We also work with technology developers who have their own IP and just need a bit of specialist skills or experience to help them get that over the next level. Um, and we've done a bit of that too. So, look, our, our IP model is is many and varied, and you know pretty much a, a bespoke arrangement for the for the case in point. Moving on to the next uh, area of opportunity then, we've spoken about exports. Uh, we touched upon gas net networks before, so yeah, did you have any further information to share on uh, on gas networks? Or Oh, look, we aren't particularly active in that space. Our, our colleagues in some of the, the gas companies and certainly in the Future Fuel CRC are doing much of the heavy lifting there, which is really good to see. Look, I think it's yeah, those projects are really good at, at providing the learnings for how you make some of this green hydrogen and how you handle it because even though hydrogen's been used for hundreds of years in you know fertilizer plants and oil refineries it was always made in those plants and the handling and the management of that was you know strictly controlled by procedures and and all those sorts of things i think one of the things we have to make sure we get right is as we take hydrogen out of those sorts of plants and use it in a more diverse range of applications I mean, to make sure people are familiar enough with its use so that it remains safe. So I think, you know, those activities looking at making clean hydrogen, you know, injecting it into natural gas pipelines in a, in a real staged and managed approach is really going to get us a lot of runs on the board in that space. So it's really good to watch. Uh, transportation then, is that mainly road 
transportation you're thinking or rail uh, uh, i know airbus and amongst others are looking at uh, uh, aviation and uh, hydrogen fueled planes i think i saw a, an announcement the other day there's a company in in europe somewhere looking at uh, uh, i don't think it's a passenger jet but uh, for transportation of, of emergency products and and logistics that uh, their intent is that you can be able to uh, transport something anywhere around the world within two to three hours. So, yeah. Look, if you'd asked me the transport question a couple of years ago, it would have been easy. <laughs> but now it's, it's yeah, look, transport is an interesting one. I think when we look at sort of the passenger car scale, I think hydrogen has an important role there, but probably less of a role. I think, you know, if we look at the standard urban commuter, you know, car from work to home where it sits somewhere for a, a, most of the, the day or the night, that really is pretty well suited to the battery electric vehicle model. And I think that's a really good and important way of, you know, decarbonizing that commuter style of, of travel. And it also allows, as we think about its interaction with the grid, a whole range of options around um, energy storage that we never really had available to us before. So I think there will be hydrogen-fueled passenger vehicles, but I think unlikely necessarily in that urban commuter. I think the bigger we get in terms of the vehicles, the longer they have to travel and the less time we want to have for, for refueling is, is when the, the hydrogen electric vehicles are going to become more and more suitable. And I think when we get to trucks, in particular long-haul semi-trailers and, and, and those sorts of things, that's really where I think hydrogen is seen as playing a big part um, just because of the, you know, the amount of energy you need to store in either batteries or hydrogen and how, and how quickly we need to be able to refuel. That used to be where we stopped, I think now, but nowadays we're thinking about other things. And you mentioned aviation. We did a bit of work with Boeing a year or two ago, and I think there's a report out somewhere in the, on the web about that. Um, so, you know, there's some, of the, some of these big companies are, are thinking about how hydrogen can play a role in aviation. And it doesn't just have to be the planes. I mean, the ground support infrastructure is you know, very energy intensive and a lot of that's on diesel. And so there's opportunities on the ground in aviation as well as in the air. I think what's emerged in the last year or so, though, which is interesting, is shipping, is, the, is international freight shipping, these big tankers that are big big boats that um, are inevitably fueled on, on sort of heavy fuel oil, which is not a particularly pleasant fuel. Outside of the world of hydrogen, that sector is being asked more and more to reduce its emissions, um, not just in port anymore, but also at sea. And so, you know, I mentioned earlier, I think the use of ammonia in an internal combustion engine, and th this has become a real opportunity for the, for the marine sector. Ammonia is not so good in fast engines like the ones that we're used to in our cars, but the bigger and the slower the engines get, um, the more suitable they become for the use of ammonia as a fuel in the engine. Now, ship engines are massive. These are big megawatt scale engines, and there's a lot of interest at the moment in using ammonia as a shipping fuel. Now, that's a massive undertaking. This, you know, this requires conversion of ports and bunkers and the boats and the engines, a lot of, a lot of work to do. But I think the, the, drive, the magnitude of the driver and the opportunity is such that we're seeing more and more people talk about this at higher and higher levels. And you know, this, is, this is not a, a wishful idea of a, of a scientist who doesn't have to do it. This is emerging as an opportunity. So... You know, transport is is diverse, and hydrogen or its carriers have an opportunity to play a massive role. I think. There's so many great points that you uh, covered there. From another example of the potential hubs around the the ports, the airports. Uh, interesting concept uh, again around the having storage in our homes. If everyone's got a, a vehicle that they're charging during the daytime, and then uh, using that as an uh, an energy store um to use it at, at, at night I, yeah so many uh, many opportunities and and the tangled web of the the energy mix isn't it? it it is and look and it's what we're seeing in this as this energy transition is sort of developed and then unfolded i guess that the sectors that haven't really come together before are now coming together you know so you know, we speak about transport we speak about electricity we speak about heavy industry there have been sectors that had to come together and think about energy together before, right? But, but as you just said, now we've got the transport sector playing a real and, and important role in energy storage for the grid. 
we're seeing the potential for electrolyzers to be actually to be grid connected and play a similar role in that they can be ramped up and down pretty quickly. Um, they can manage some of the intermittency that's associated with, you know, a, an increasing penetration of variable renewables, solar and wind into the grid. All these sectors coming together is then then we see the agriculture sector say, hang on, if you, you guys are going to be making ammonia, green ammonia from from renewable energy. We use a lot of ammonia and we make it all from natural gas and in some countries they also make it from coal. If we can decarbonise ammonia production, if we can use new techs to actually make it on the farm, then all of a sudden we have on-farm production of renewable fertiliser, energy, storage and, and power. These are game-changing things. Yeah. Right? Now, that's not going to happen in five years. But as the sector grows and as the various other sectors become much more coupled, these are the sorts of things that become possible. And the technologies involved in that are not 100 years away. They're not, you know, one of our postdocs sitting in the lab soldering up a, a PCB. These are things which are getting close to demonstration and the work to be, to be done is actually in the integration of them, not so much the development of the core components. So it's, yeah, it's interesting times. Yes, yeah. Um, are there any pilots out there at the moment then uh, around that agricultural? So we're talking more and more about agricultural applications. We've, you know, some of our work into new technologies for producing and synthesizing ammonia we're doing in partnership with some of the agricultural grains and rural research organizations that we've never really partnered with in an energy context before and one tech in particular one of our emerging ammonia synthesis technologies is almost at the point where we're ready to continue our work with some of these organizations and, and scaled up to a, to a demo and that's so that's really exciting Anything else on energy systems? Um, perhaps if you could talk about long-term storage and see um, how hydrogen could assist with the seasonal storage, perhaps? Yeah, look, that's, I think, a really important role that hydrogen can play in, in terms of storage. Again, I don't think we need to battle between batteries and, and hydrogen. <laughs> I think there's enough in this for everybody. I think you know, we see batteries already in our grid and, and we see them in our homes and we can see the benefits that they have for that short-term storage. I think... That long-term play is really where the hydrogen begins to have an advantage. Hydrogen's a gas. You can put it into a tank and you can store it for a long time. And that's really valuable. I think we see, you know, a couple of, a year or so ago, I used to talk about an example in Sweden where there was a, a residential apartment block completely off-grid. It had hydrogen storage in its in its basement. It was covered in PV. In the long summer days in Scandinavia, the, the sun was enough to drive the, the needs of the apartment block and charge up the hydrogen so that during the, the very dark winter, the hydrogen was able to service the needs of that apartment block. Um, that's a real project. It's happening and, and, it's, and it's working. And so this is not some sort of fantasy. These are, these are possibilities. And I think that, being able, that consideration of the longer-term storage and the role it has to play becomes really, really interesting. We've, um, and you see it in the industry sector as well. There's a there's a mine in Canada, I think it's the Raglan mine in Canada, which has put in, well, had one, now it's got two megawatt scale wind turbines and that they've linked those turbines up with a, a hybrid flywheel, battery and hydrogen system. Now, you know, each of those has a different role to play in terms of smoothing supply and balancing out supply and demand. And together, that hybrid storage system has meant that that three megawatt, I think it's three megawatts of wind power as part of a 30 megawatt microgrid has saved enormous amounts of very expensive and very polluting diesel to power that mining microgrid. So, you know, storage, especially when we start to hybridise things, becomes a really, really important role for things like hydrogen and, and, and its derivatives as well. And I think the final opportunity that was identified as one of the five main areas, I appreciate there's many more, was um, industrial processes. So we've seen a, a number of projects right here in Queensland. Uh, Sun Metals and Arc Energy are uh, looking at making green zinc. I think Rio Tinto have uh, got a trial going on at Yarwon up in Gladstone for the alumina using hydrogen as the uh, the energy source uh, there. And... Um, Fortescue uh, are also looking at hi hydrogen as well, and very you know, so. Twi Twiggy's very, <laughs> very public in in his uh, promotion of, mm. of green hydrogen and making green steel. So, for the listeners, could you talk about the advantages and perhaps some of the challenges as well of, of hydrogen and um, 
using hyd- green hydrogen or, or clean hydrogen into cleaning up some of these industrial processes? Yeah, look, it's you know once it was called the hard to abate sector, and I think we stopped. We've sort of stopped using that now because we have these opportunities available to us by virtue of the you know, rapid development of the hydrogen sector. So I mean, so hydrogen can do two things in this context. It's a, an energy source, so it's a fuel that you can use to replace natural gas in heating, but it's also a reductant, really good at taking oxygen off things. And when you think about so much of the the, the processing that we do in the minerals and mining capacity, that's where our emissions come from, either making a reductant or making the heat to process. Of course, there is just the energy demand, like pumps and, and crushes and all these sorts of, of things use a lot of electricity. So there are so many options here for, for decarbonisation. And I think getting the right technical foundation here is important to making it work. And this is, again, why we're playing the role we are in the, the HILT CRC, which has just established itself to do the research with many industry partners from those sectors. But, you know, replacing natural gas is one way of, of um, decarbonising some of these processing sectors, and we've spoken a bit about that, I think, already in the ter- terms of the things that we need to get right there. Green steel and green iron is really interesting, I think, for a couple of reasons, I think so. You know, most steel at the moment is made via the blast furnace route, and that's you know these are big furnaces full of um, metallurgical coke, which comes from metallurgical coal, and heated up with um, either coal or, or other fuels, and then um, the iron ore is is reduced in there to, to iron. And these are very energy intensive and carbon intensive processes. Difficult to decarbonise completely because of the reliance on metallurgical coke to hold up the blast furnace and, and provide the reducing power to get the oxygen off the iron. So we can use hydrogen, for example, to make the heat in the bottom of the blast furnace, but I think the blast furnace is unlikely to be completely decarbonised unless we can find a, a, a carbon-free alternative to the metallurgical coke. There, I mean, there are, because there are so many, though, there's a lot of advantages in um, using high-quality iron ore, and there's opportunities for us to do that in Australia with hydrogen, which really does embed some of that renewable energy into that, that ore that we export. What's emerging, though, is a completely different pathway, which doesn't rely on a blast furnace and which uses what's called the electric arc furnace, which uses a lot of electricity. So you know, fairly easy then to be decarbonised if we've got a, a renewable source of electricity. And the input to that needs to be pretty high quality. So there's often a pre-processing step, sometimes called direct reduction of iron, which, you know, hitherto has been done with natural gas and coal as a heat source and a reductant. Hydrogen can do that really well. And so there's an opportunity to add value to our domestic iron sector by doing some processing in Australia, using our you know abundant renewable resources to increase the quality of the iron ore that we're producing. Now that has impacts on the blast furnace route. It opens up a market for the electric arc furnace route. And the more people think about this, the further along that value chain they think they can get. And maybe there's an opportunity for us to break that link between you know things like the cost of labour and the competitiveness that we have internationally by saying, well, we've got all this abundant renewable energy resource available to us. That's our competitive advantage. And we can do a lot of onshore cleverness with our iron and related materials. And, and that's a real that's seen as a real positive because I think for a long time we've seen you know, digging up our iron ore and just selling it as not necessarily making the most of what we've got to offer. Yeah, absolutely. And on the Waste to energy and gasification. So the things that I uh, did remember to loop back around oh, well to, to that. Yeah, what are some of the advancements in uh, in that particular area of the sector? Yeah, so look, extracting you know, energy from waste is something that's done a lot around the world. It hasn't been linked to hydrogen before. It's been a way of managing waste effectively, sustainably, and you know, generating power and and heat as byproducts, which offset, of course, the use of, of fossil fuels. And that's a pretty established industry around the world. We don't do much of that in Australia. I think, you know, the alternative, which was landfill, has always been much cheaper. And I think there's a general lack of understanding in this country of the technology and what it can do. And so, you know, when projects do get proposed, 
tend to get a lot of opposition and don't don't go far. And that's a bit of a shame, I think, because you know throwing things into the ground is not is not the best thing we could be doing with some of these waste streams. Um, and certainly, you know, integrating recycling and energy recovery is certainly, well, it has been up until recently probably best practice, what we're seeing emerge now, and this is driven largely by Europe and, Ger- and Germany in particular, this notion of a circular economy and, you know, doing more with our molecules, if you like, keeping material out of landfill is really driving now policy and regulation. And as we see circular economy, I guess, become embedded in some of those um, policies and, and regulations, we see alternative technologies begin to emerge. So the waste to energy tech that I've sort of described is fairly simple. We, we combust waste, send the ash to landfill, recover the heat and the energy from that in, in the same way as you might burn gas or coal in a power station. It's a very analogous process. Emerging pathways based on, as you suggested, gasification, and there are others, really do offer a lot more flexibility. They're expensive and they're a bit less proven because there hasn't really been a driver for that. But I think the circular economy movement is one driver for that. And what we're also seeing in Australia is the fact that going down a gasification pathway makes hydrogen as, a, as an intermediate. And in fact, you know, gasification is how we've made much of our hydrogen from coal in the last hundred years. And this brings a whole new perspective on on waste as a resource. It's not it's not just an energy resource anymore. It can be a, a, a resource as a as a manufacturing feedstock or as a pathway to recycle materials that you can't recycle with current technologies, and actually use them as as feedstocks to make more plastics or make other materials, make fuels or hydrogen. And so we're starting to see now a lot of interest in these pathways where we take um, biomass and waste streams and process them to produce hydrogen. It's another way of making green hydrogen because if, if, if your input material is deemed renewable, it, this is a renewable source of hydrogen. And I think we often talk about the scale of hydrogen production, how many wind turbines and how much PV that, that, that represents. I think if we can diversify some of the production pathways to include some of these um, emerging technologies that link into other problems around waste management, um, then it's a real, it's, it's, it's a win-win, I think, for both sides. Yeah. Do you, in, in your experience in the uh, research that you've done, the consumer concept of waste to energy, do you think people realise what a, a value added that it can have? And I'm, I'm just thinking of, you know, the immediate visual that comes to mind is is a big pile of rubbish being burnt. Like, and I guess in line with that, are all the byproducts captured through that process? So in the in the combustion-based play, which is certainly the most common, where, you know, the, the waste is burnt in a boiler um, and the heat recovered, a lot of effort has been has gone on um, for for decades and decades and decades now to manage those gaseous emissions. I think most people get a bit frightened when they think about this, and they they their minds turn to what was very um, headline worthy news. I think it was even in the seventies is when it happened, and I think it was Japan. These plumes of, of dioxins spreading around the world, and from and they were doing not that much better than what you just described. It's come a long way since the seventies in this in this context. I think. You know, that modern, well-designed, well-run plants in Europe, you know, the emissions are well-controlled. It's, 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 it's state-of-the-art technology that's off the shelf and, and, and routinely used to meet the very stringent um, air quality requirements in Europe. And, you know, many of the proponents of these plants will claim with, and support it with data that the air, well, that the, the gas coming out of their flue gas is cleaner than the air they're sucking in to, to burn their waste. Yeah, well... Where do you see we can get to within five years? I really hate these questions. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's go um, 10 years. <laughs> oh, no, that, I'm not sure if that's better. Um, and the reason is, you know, if you'd asked me five years ago what, where, how, you know, how the hydrogen industry would be progressing, I would never have described it, I don't think, in, in the context of what we can see around us. I think my experience in, in energy R&D is that change is difficult to catalyze and, and slow to, to realize. We're not seeing that anymore. We're, you know, we're seeing governments with strategies and in some cases really good policies. We're seeing boardrooms now with, with ESG criteria that really leave very little option but to significantly change the way they do their business. And we're seeing the public now with a real, uh, a much wider and larger appetite for change. So, 
you know, I guess in the context of all that, what I really would like to see, which is a slightly different answer to, to your question, is that the demo projects that we've seen announced, that we've seen funding awarded to, that we've seen plans put in place for are, are realised. And I think because, you know, having megawatts, tens and hundreds of, of megawatts of electrolytic hydrogen production, you know, having manufacturing plants being built in this country for some of the key components, having Australian science and technology being commercialised to support new value chains across sectors, you know, that, maybe that is a 10-year question, but I think if we can see those things actually turn into, you know, molecules on the ground, then we'll be well on the way to, um, you know, a, a transformational change, I think, across all the sectors we've spoken about. Yeah, good stuff. We've covered an awful lot in less than an hour. This is true. Uh, this is true. <laughs> we only really just scratched the surface. Uh, so how can the audience follow your work and the work of your team and what CS- CSIRO is doing? Look, CSIRO is active on the, the social channels, I understand. The hydrogen mission team that I spoke about also runs a, a website called High Resource, which is HY Resource. Look that up because that's a, a real stock take of of projects around the country and how they're developing. Um, not just our research projects, but you know the, the research and the demo projects as well. You know, that group also runs the Australian Hydrogen Research Network, which I think will be listed on that page, web page somewhere, which is, again, a, a really good, um, if you're a res- in the research community and you want to learn more about the research that's going on in this space, the AHRN is a great um, portal to, to get you into that. So, look, if all else fails, just send me an email and I'll, and I'll help out. Fantastic. And we'll put all the links on in the show notes. So, Thanks so much again, Daniel. Thanks for the great work that you're doing and the work of your team. And we appreciate your time. If you enjoyed the episode, please don't forget to like and subscribe and give us a five-star rating. Great. Thanks, Andy. It was a pleasure. I'm Andy Marsland. Hope you enjoyed the show. Thanks for joining us on the Hydrogen Journey. We welcome you to join us at our next episode. Please remember to subscribe and review the show and hope to see you next time.